1: Hey, good to have you on the show. Hey, Jeremy, this is amazing. I'm so happy to be here and and looking forward to what we're going to talk about.
0: Well, Robbie, I've heard great things about you. I recently had a fun chat with your colleague, Andrew, about course creation. And I'm excited to dive deeper into your journey and your thoughts ahead.
1: I don't know how great I feel following Andrew. He probably said too many nice things, and so it's going to make me look bad. But uh, I'm excited to go into all this stuff, too.
0: Yeah. So, Robbie, just for those who don't know you yet, how would you describe yourself professionally? I was a trial lawyer and have moved into more
1: of a role of helping people to get their message out to the world, becoming great speakers. And so I think really, if I am going to put it into words now, my my job description is I'm there to help amplify people's voices, visions and impact on the world.
0: Awesome. So let's go back to the beginning, right? So you started out as a lawyer, and I need to hear this journey, right? Because along the way, you became a creator, content creator, as they call it today. And then eventually now you're at On Deck, right? So that's like quite the journey. So start from the beginning, like, What made you decide that you wanted to study law? I've heard a variety of reasons. Were you because your parents thought it was a good idea? Was it because you thought it was cool and you saw a lot of TV? Because why choose law as a course of study?
1: Yeah, so why choose law? And it's a good question. It's something that I thought a lot about back when I I made that decision. So one, I did it because I wanted to be a history major in college. And when you're a history major in college, there aren't a ton of jobs that you're going to get coming out of that. So I actually knew that in my freshman year where I was like, I want to study history. Like, that's the thing that I enjoy. So when I'm in college, I'm going to do the thing that I enjoy. But I also know that I need a job at some point in life because that's kind of how we live. So I said, I'm going to go to law school. I told my parents that. And of course, they were happy. But why did I choose to go to law school, right, is the bigger question. And the real thing kind of boils down to I wanted to learn how the rules work. Because I, I realize that everything in the U.S. especially is driven by, by lawyers and rules. Politicians, when they write the rules, they're, they're done by lawyers. And like their staff is filled with lawyers who are writing all of this sort of stuff. And when you can start to understand the rules, then you can figure out how to play the game. Right. And I think this is where we all go to this idea of everyone is playing the game, whether they want to acknowledge that or not. And it's not quite as serious as Game of Thrones, right? We're not quite playing that level of a game. But we are, and you need to know the rules in order to function inside of that. So I went to law school really to figure that out. And of course, you have this idea of like a lot of the movies and, and television shows you see, and you're like, ah, I'm going to be one of them, right? Like I'm going to be the next Harvey Specter, because that looks cool on suits. And he has this beautiful penthouse apartment and nice cars and just lives his life. But that's just not reality in all honesty. And then when I was in law school, what I really figured out that I loved doing was talking and competing. And that meant go into actual trial work, which there aren't that many real trial lawyers in the United States anymore. Like it is a a dying breed because so few cases actually go to trial. So it's a skill set that's getting lost. So in law school, I was a member of the national mock trial team and then started getting to know a bunch of really successful trial lawyers. And that ultimately led me down the path of being a trial lawyer where I tried 102 jury trials. I was trying murders, capital murders, child abuse cases, I was trying, you know, like the worst of the worst, people going to prison for the rest of their lives, trying to keep people out of prison for the rest of their lives, like super serious stuff. And it was a skill set of speaking and competing back in law school that really drove me down this path, as well as realizing that I could create this skill set that not many people have. Because for seven years, I was in just like a constant game theory lab environment, I was in human psychology lab environment, I'm in all the persuasion techniques and like, just speaking to everybody and playing this negotiation game and just a long-term chess game. So it was super valuable and incredibly interesting. But at some point, you, I, I had to get out of that world because it's it's tough.
0: Okay. So this is interesting, right? So I get it. Your history, you decide to be a law student because it's something, right? And then you go in and you're a law legal student and you're like, okay, I can be a lawyer. I mean, my sister was part of that same journey. And then you became a lawyer. And I think that's when a lot of people say, whoa, 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 I thought I knew a lot about being a lawyer, being a law student, but it's very different being an actual lawyer, especially when you do the apprenticeships, the internships, and the actual job itself. So i was just kind of curious, what was that transition like for you? So law school really does
1: teach you how to think, and it's just a cliche that people use, but it really is the truth. Because what a lawyer is all about Is being able to identify problems and figure out how to solve them quickly and then apply what you find out to the actual problem itself. And so law school is really teaching you the skill set. And when you're in it, you're like, oh, this is dumb. Why am I reading these old cases? Like they don't matter at all. And then it's one of these things we've all seen it, right? Where like your parents say, like, you'll understand when you get to my age. Someone older than you would be like, I can't explain like why I know this. I just do. Like you just need to trust me. And we all hate that answer, right? Just trust me like I know. And now when I'm talking to law students because I teach persuasive speaking at SMU Law School and also coach the National Mock Trial Team as well, I tell them oftentimes the same thing where I'm like, just trust me, there's a reason this process is going on. Because when you're actually in the real world, everything is different. You have plenty of time to research. You're never having to answer questions on a test or anything like that, you have time to get help and get resources to, to lead you down the right path. But it also is, there's different stakes. That's the big thing to remember when you actually become a lawyer. So when you're reading things in law school, you're like, oh, okay. Like somebody was harmed. Somebody was fighting some issue. The government wasn't behaving the way they're supposed to. And you read these cases and they're cold and clinical, and it's just black and white words on a, on a piece of paper. And then you get into the real world and you see how it actually affects people. And that's where you feel a different weight, where you're like, I've got to really like take care of this kind of responsibility that I have because real people's lives are being affected by the stuff that I do. So that was probably the biggest mindset shift is realizing, hey, this isn't a game. This is real people's lives that I'm, I am really in control of and have to take seriously.
0: That's really interesting. It's the stakes, right? I think that's that's really that's a huge difference, actually, and I never heard it. Articulate it that way, right? Because before that, it's all simulation, it's all studying. And then in the real world, there are real stakes, right? And you're an agent uh, and you have a duty and responsibility to someone and a system. Wow, I, I never thought about it that way. Stakes. And then I always tell people, I like, I guess the stakes is what makes, I guess, using analogy, the game, it gives it a gravity, right? Everybody, not to compare justice system with a game or anything, but the way I think about it is there's a big difference between playing poker. Well, my family's actually playing mahjong right now and they play mahjong, which is kind of like poker, without any stakes, right? And it's a totally different game from when you're playing mahjong with real money on the line, right? The stakes is what gives the game both joy in that sense, but also pain, right? And gives the incentive and motivation to, to learn and get better at it, right? So I was just kind of curious about how you think about that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. It's very, very similar to what you're talking about. When you're playing with real money, people behave differently. We've all played cards with our friends when there's no money on the stakes and they do stupid things. And you're trying to play realistic and they just don't do it. And they just keep making stupid bets. And you're like, come on, why are you going all in on like a three, eight for poker? Like, that's ridiculous. And they're like, ah, well, I don't care. Like it's not real money. If it was real money, they would be playing very, very differently. And that's the, the case too, when it comes to being a lawyer. Because you really go from this sense of ah, you're basically playing with like fake money, monopoly money, right, to now real people are at stake. And so I think you also have varying degrees inside of the law of those stakes. And that's why, for me, the role that I was in as a trial lawyer and trying these very, very serious cases, murders, capital murders, child abuse cases, where people were seriously harmed or killed and people are facing, I mean, huge punishments and rightfully so most of the time, you realize there's just a different level of gravity in that situation. And so like it weighs on you. And, and I've said this, I've used this analogy too. When the last piece of my career as a trial lawyer at the district attorney's office, I was a child abuse prosecutor for around a year. And that was a different level of stakes than anything I'd been in before. And i tried murders capital murders, shootings, very serious cases, but nothing is the same as like when an innocent child has been harmed by somebody in that situation. And you're having to work with that child who's just been destroyed from, from that event. And those stakes are so high that like you essentially, I, I was talking about this over this past weekend, someone was asking how I did that. Cause we were at dinner and they're like, that must inform kind of the way that you see the world because like you see the worst in humanity. And I was like, it, it can, Like, that is a real concern. And I said, when I left the DA's office and left that work, part of the reason was I I had two options. I either could become completely desensitized to everything in order to survive. Then I would start doing things that were not good for other people because I was so desensitized. I wasn't actually looking at it like a normal human being when I was evaluating cases. Or I could let it just destroy me. I could still be the sympathetic, empathetic human that I am, but it would destroy me because I would see evil everywhere that I looked. And so what I said, you almost have to do is in that period of time, I removed like a part of my soul, kind of like you think of like Voldemort in Harry Potter, not that I want to be Voldemort, but like the way that he is able to remove piece of his soul and put them into different items. When you're dealing with these cases, the only way to survive them is to do something like that because it is so dark when you're in that space. So like those stakes are so different and you don't understand it until you're in there. So like there's a lot of trial lawyers who have tried plenty of cases and they'll celebrate their cases, and, and rightfully so. And then I'm like, here were the cases I was working on. And it's a different level, because you're talking about real lives, you're talking about children, you're talking about things that are just horrific, that most people wouldn't even believe the stuff that I've seen, unfortunately. That does change your perspective, where you realize, when you get to real stakes, you've got to elevate your game. You've got to take it extremely seriously, because that's, that's what it requires.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, it's so true, right? One thing I noticed is that when the stakes are high... You we're know, kind of talking about is like, because these are real lives at stake, real families, real psychologies, right, around, and trust in the system and justice is at play. Those are real stakes, right? And so everyone's, like you said earlier, kind of like intentional, has a gravity, this seriousness to the work. I was just kind of curious, and we are also kind of talking about how it, it changes learning, right? Because if there's no stakes, there's no learning, right? And obviously, when there's some stakes or high stakes, people are learning. But, you made me think, if the stakes are too high, do you, it almost f- stops your learning, right? Like it burns you out, right? Is that, I don't know if you feel that way or how you feel about that. Yeah.
1: So I don't feel like it stopped me from learning. In fact, it had the opposite effect where I was like, I'm going to be the absolute best. And I mean, like I went all in. This is really where a lot of my growth occurred in terms of all of the speaking and persuasion tactics and all those sort of things because I realized the stakes I was dealing with And so that like essentially forced me to elevate. I've always been that person though that wants like the highest stakes, wants the most serious stuff. In fact, the way I got my job at the Dallas District Attorney's Office is in my interview, I was in there with the number one, two, and three in the office. And the office is is one of the largest District Attorney's Offices in the United States. It's an incredibly focused trial office. They're very hands-off, like give you lots of flexibility and freedom to, to try cases very early on. And I was sitting there, and I was going through the interview, and I was getting getting pushback for, for certain things, and, and rightfully so. But then they asked, well, why do you really want the job? And I sat there, and I said, I want to try the most serious, high-profile, important cases that you have in this office. And I found out years later from the number three that was in that room, who ended up being my direct boss, that was the answer that got the job. Because he said, I want people like that. I want people who want to step into that situation. Because like you said, a lot of people, when they get higher and higher into those situations, they fold. They can't deal with those stakes anymore. They shut down. So does that happen? 100%. Did it happen to me? No. I, I actually went the other way where I was like, I've just I've got to be better than everybody. I've got to know the law better than everybody. I've got to be playing a chess game better than everybody. I've got to see all the moves. I've got to set up my board. I've got to be playing all the negotiation game, game theory. like Everything's got to come in. I've got to be the best at persuading people. I have to be totally in control. And so for me, it just made sense. And I I was always that kid too, when I played sports in high school, college, if the game was on the line, you know, last second shot in basketball, like I want to take it. If we were down a run and we had a runner on first and I was coming up to bat in college, like I wanted that. That was always who I was. Like, I I love that situation. Yes, you're going to fail and it's going to be crushing, but somebody's got to step up. and, And most people won't. Most people don't want those stakes. They don't want that pressure. But for the people that can handle that, that's where you see the greatest reward. And that's where you actually impact the most people at the greatest scale. And so that's what you've just got to be comfortable doing.
0: Yeah, so help me with this, right? So you're competitive, right? And you know that you're competitive. And you know that's also pushed you to be be your best, right? Yet at the same point of time, you you also chose to stop playing this route, right? This game in that sense, right? So what was it like? I mean, you had two impulses, right? You had one, you're like, I've been doing this and I've gotten this really hard stuff and I can keep going. But at the same point, you also said you're like, if I keep going, it's gonna cost me something that I didn't know it's gonna cost me, right? So what was it like balancing that? You must have been a tough call because leaving too many people will feel like they'll say it's surrendering, right? You're not playing to win anymore. So how was that? How did that two impulses or those two conversations happen?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I left the the DA's office and I remember when I I told all my bosses, they were like, seriously, like why? And I was just like, because I I need to. Like you understand the trajectory you're on. You're on the fast track to like these roles that are super high in the office. And I was like, "I, I get that. I do. I understand what I'm walking away from, but I was like, I need to. And so I went into private practice for a little bit first as kind of like that bridge. And so like I was doing a little bit of criminal defense and tried some big cases there. And again, I think I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it on the other side and represent people who I believed were innocent and actually win the case. And so I tried a a child abuse and a murder case as a defense attorney and ended up winning both of those as well and getting not guilty verdicts on those cases. So I was like, okay, cool. I've got that too. I think that was the moment where I was like, all right, this isn't something that I don't see a growth pattern moving forward in that role. Like I can try the same cases over and over and I'll continue to get the results that I was getting. But where's that growth? And so, like, if I would have stayed in the DA's office, my growth would have been helping other people, and that would have been meaningful and fun. But that is is just not a world that I wanted to continue to be a part of during that time. And so, I opened up my own law firm with my partner, and we went into more like civil rights violations, and people have been harmed or killed at the hands of government, hospitals, businesses, whatever it may be, for reasons of race, religion, gender, whatever it may be. And like that was kind of a nice break because I still got to kind of play the game, but it wasn't as brutal because it was civil litigation and not criminal anymore. But the reality is what I really came to understand is being a lawyer is all about minimizing risk. And I said, I don't, I don't want to minimize risk anymore. Like I don't want to make sure the worst thing doesn't happen. I said, I want to be working to maximize rewards. So like I had this mindset shift where I was like, I don't want to minimize. I want to maximize. And like, where can I do that? And I had this idea starting back in, even in law school, I had said at some point I'm gonna use this trial experience to do something outside of of law. I didn't know what it was back then, but I was like, if I build this skill set that nobody else has, because having you know 102 jury trials and the type that I did puts me at like the top 1% of 1% of US attorneys. So I was like, I, I know I have something special there that I can translate, but was figuring out what it was? And so in about 2019, I started thinking, hey, there's a way to translate this knowledge to a wider audience because at that time I was teaching persuasive speaking at SMU law school and coaching the national mock trial team at SMU law school. And every year we'd get hundred, 150 people trying to come in to the class that I teach. And I was like, okay, there's clearly a market here, but I said, how can I start impacting that on a greater scale? And I, and I loved working with the students and I still do, but you work with them in a very small number because you're live and in person, it's graded. Like there are requirements there. So you can only work with a small handful. So I started to impact more people that way, but it's still a smaller number than I wanted to. And then COVID hit and really shut down the world, right? Where all of a sudden I saw, hey, there's this online space, there's this online education space that's really taking off. And I, I came across Jack Butcher and David Perel and said, hey, like I can do that. Like I have a course that I run, I can turn it into a more general audience approach and then really start putting that out there. So that was the pivot that I made. And the reason I did that is because I, I said, I can change this mindset where I'm going from that minimizing risk to maximizing rewards. And so that was the cool moment where I saw that. And then it's just a different game, right? Now you're playing a different game of being a a founder and building out your startup and figuring out how to market it and sell it and all these sort of things, how to work with all of your customers and do that customer success story with them. So there's different levels to that. And and then that ultimately led me into the on-deck stuff, but also the consulting stuff where I work with founders who are fundraising, especially, but also you know, hiring executive teams, leading them, reaching their customers. And that fundraising piece, especially, is again a huge game, very similar, where you're trying to craft the right message, you're trying to set up the pieces in the right way, you're playing all these sort of similar things as to what I was dealing with as a trial lawyer. So I wouldn't say that I completely removed myself from that world. I just kind of removed myself from dealing with a bunch of lawyers and now deal with a lot more like VCs and, and people like that, which I'm not sure there's a ton of difference.
0: Yeah let's make sure we kind of like go deeper in this one, right? So, because I feel the same way, I think, as I used to do martial arts, right? Judo and taekwondo, and as a very achievement-oriented person, it was always about whatever the game I'm in, I'm going to fight as hard, do my absolute best, right? At some point of time, I was like, whoa, 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 what is this game that I'm part of, right? Like, Is this even a game that I want to be part of? This is the game that the school put in front of me. This is the game that my parents want me to play. But do I choose this game, right? And that almost feels like one's like the fast brain and one's a slow brain. What The fast brain is like, this month I got to win, right? This week I got to win. And then there's a deeper one which is like, I don't know, at night or you're hanging out and you're like, why am I winning? (laughs) You know, like, is this what I want to win? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, previously when i was in that role as a trial lawyer i I definitely understood that because when i was in that moment i was in that case i was so totally focused on like winning and winning is like a a misnomer i think in a lot of ways because again nobody wins in the cases i was trying like everyone loses that's the sad part even if a guilty verdict comes back as when i was a prosecutor like that child is still so lost and when i was defending on the other side even getting the not guilty verdict on like say the murder It still didn't change the fact that for two years, he had spent all this money and had all this stress and it had affected his family. And at the end of the day, like the reason he was not guilty of this case was it was self-defense. So like he did, in fact, kill his brother. So like he still loses because he still has to live with the fact that he killed his brother trying to defend himself. Like that will stick with him. So for me, like in the moment, you know, I'm trying to win, right? And again, using that term as kind of just this, this way of describing how that plays out. But then you would get home, right? And you would, you'd be really proud of yourself. And people would be like, wow, how did you do that? And I mean, I'd get tons of messages and emails and phone calls and like, tell me more about that because that shouldn't have happened. Like most people just couldn't believe what was coming out of, out of my cases and the results. But it was one of those moments where I think I was very much like you. I was like, I understand how to do this stuff really well. But like, why? Like what comes next? Am I really winning? Because then it's just like, okay, on to the next one. And you see something similar. You see another case that looks just like the one you just tried. And you're like, okay, so I won that one. But in the bigger scope of things, am I winning? Or am I just kind of like in this, almost like the Truman Show a little bit where you're just, or like even the Matrix, where you're just like, you're just going through the motions and like, yes, you've gotten really good, but how much control are you really exerting in that industry, in your position? And I think when you look at that and you say, I'm not, like I'm playing in the game, but I'm one of the the pieces I'm not the person, I'm not the hand that's actually moving them. I think that's when you start to realize there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a bigger picture where you can take part in. And again, I I think when you asked me earlier, I was saying, like, what do I do? Like, my job is to help people essentially to scale their impact through their their voice, essentially, and telling their story and being a great communicator. And I say that because that allows me not to be a piece so much, but to actually be a player and moving things around and saying, hey, I'm not just going to be helping One family, I'm going to work with companies who are tackling climate change or systemic racism or things of that nature where they can bring on huge, huge impact into the world. And that's different. Now I'm not a piece of that game. I'm actually one of the players in that game. And I think that that's important to me. And that's why, like you said, that fast and slow brain, when you're in that moment and it's that fast brain, you're just like, I just got to win the next one. I got to win the next one. I got to win the next one. But then you stop and think and you say, no, no, like there's a bigger, picture and I need to start getting into that. And I think that's also what informed a lot of these, these moves that I've made over the past realistically like two, two and a half years to get to this point.
0: I'm personally curious like how do you engage your slow brain? Because you know you had all these things happening during the day, you're moving, you're prepping, you're getting stuff done. When does your slow brain like kick in? Or how do you code in that slow brain?
1: So for me, it's very much a a nighttime activity, especially like that's just when things start really like my brain is basically pulled in all the information of the day and just kind of like work through it. And then by the end, it gives me time to just really think through all these things. And you start to realize patterns and I start taking notes. I start putting things into a Google doc a Rome or wherever I want to, or writing it down and just being like, I need to come back to this. Like there's something here and I don't know what it is yet, but I need to figure that out. I also do it with writing. So I like writing. I think that that helps me kind of explore ideas that are in my head and kind of turn them from this blob of a mess into like some sort of fully formed idea and thought to play out. Then you also, for me, I'll find a lot of this when I just like go to the gym or go for walks. Like I try to walk fairly occasionally just to be in kind of the moment where I'm not distracted by anything. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not getting emails. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I just kind of am thinking as I walk. And so a lot of that is allowing my slow brain to start kicking in and say, hey, let's do some deep work. And the last piece is honestly travel for me is one of those big pieces where I'm able to do that reflection as well. So what I'd find after most big trials I would do is I would typically take off for about anywhere between three days to a week and go somewhere. And the reason being is I just need that chance to reset to really explore how I was feeling about some of those ideas. I think that is what allowed me over time to realize, Hey, I need to leave. I need to do something differently because after each one of those, I kept feeling the same way. I kept having these same thoughts and you're always going to have ups and downs, right? Like life is always like, like that. Things are good. Things are bad. Things are good. Things are bad. Like it's, it's just part of it. And so you don't want to let one or two moments where you're like, "Ah, I don't like what I'm doing anymore lead you to make some sort of rash decision. But over the course of a year, two years, when you're seeing that after every big trial and you're feeling the same way, like there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more, there's gotta be more. At a certain point, you have to listen and you have to say, what is that more? And I think that's that's how I did that oftentimes, just traveling. And I do a lot of solo travel too, where it's literally just me, hanging out in places I don't know, just enjoying a scene. Like I'll sit at a cafe and just watch the, the stream of life. And that is when... Things kind of go to work, and I can say, okay, like this is what needs to be done next, and then really go from there.
0: Yeah. You know, I love the Truman Show as well, one of my favorite all time movies. And you sound very much like Truman, right? Just kind of like getting that inner conviction or question, doubt, or questions. And I guess I'm kind of curious, like, obviously, if, like Truman, he has all these friends who Truman is obviously is a different thing, but this, those are fake friends, right? But and they will like stay the same. Everything's good. Stay on the island. You don't need to travel. There's nothing else. This is the world, right? I'm, I'm sure you... And you kind of mentioned this in passing, right? Which is like, there are people who are around you who are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you sure? Like, this is the world and you at the track, right? So was it like having a conversation? Like, a partner or like parents or f- close friends? All your buddies must have been lawyers as well because from lost school and everything. So... What was it like being, I guess, Truman in that world where everyone around you was a lawyer or law affiliated?
1: For the most part, it was a lot of people just telling me I was crazy and saying like this is not what you should be doing. And I would get this the the common retort was, You're a lawyer. Robbie, you're a lawyer. Why are you leaving the law like you're a lawyer? And I understand where they're coming from, right? Like it's seen as this prestigious thing and don't get me wrong. It is like going to law school, doing the things I've I've done is incredibly valuable and important to me. I'm incredibly proud of the work that I've done, the lives that I've impacted, the people that I've gotten to work with. But that doesn't mean that that's all I am. And I've said this before, too many lawyers feel like their entire identity is I'm a lawyer. Like, in fact, when they introduce themselves, like they would say, hi, I'm Robbie, I'm a lawyer. But that shouldn't be who we are. Like, that's not the full picture of who I am as a person. And so, like, I had to have this discussion with people where I was like, yes, I'm still a lawyer, but like, I'm so many other things. I'm a a creator. I'm a founder. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm all these different pieces. Like, why, why am I constraining myself to just being a lawyer? But that didn't mean that it worked, in all honesty. Nobody really believed, including my parents and and love my parents. And I totally get where they're coming from because they saw lawyer as comfortable life, successful, all these good things. And it also like, let's be honest, it was easy for them to explain, Hey, my son is a lawyer and everyone got it. And all of a sudden I was basically leaving that behind. And now they're trying to figure out how do they tell their friends? Like what, what is, what is your son doing? Right? Oh, he's, he's the a founder of some sort of speaking company. Their friends don't understand that. So for them, it was challenging. And they pushed back. I mean, they pushed back probably up until November was the first time where they were like, okay, like you might actually have something here. And then the big moment that changed for me, obviously, is when when On Deck acquired the the course and I put that out. Then all of my lawyer friends reached out and now it was no longer Robbie, or crazy. Now it turned into Robbie, can you tell us how you did it and how I can do it? And I think that was a an interesting transition. And I always use the example of, like, if you ever go cliff diving, right, and you don't know much about where you're going cliff diving, nobody wants to be the first person to jump because they don't know how deep the water is. Like, something bad could happen, right? There could be rocks down there. It could be very shallow. Like, you could get hurt, whatever it is. But once, like, one person does it, goes under and then comes back up and says, hey, y'all, the water is fine, then everybody follows in because now they trust them. And so in a lot of ways, I was kind of that first cliff diver for a lot of my friend group who were lawyers or my friends from back home who have just kind of been stuck in kind of like the corporate life, even my family and those sort of things. Once they saw me jump and come back up and say, hey, y'all, like, it's fine. Like, you're going to be safe. Then I started getting all these questions of, Robbie, tell me how you did it. Like, I want to talk about startups. I want to learn about being a founder. I want to learn about all the stuff that you're doing because I think I could do it too. And my conversation with them is you can do it, but realize it's hard it looks easy because you don't see all the hard stuff that was going on. You don't see the years that built up to this. You don't see all of the months where you're working hundred plus hour weeks and not sleeping and having zero paychecks and all this sort of stuff. Like you don't see that. So get ready because it is safe. Like you can jump in and you'll come back up, but it is also like when you jump off that cliff, it is a long time before you hit that water and come back up. So you better be ready to just trust that it's going to end up working out. So it's been a fun process to see that, that mindset shift and a lot of my friends and family. Now my, my family's super proud. Like, they love it. And that's been a really cool transition to see as well. Just kind of that, that belief capital, right? Which I think is something that's so important is not money. Like, I don't need, need money from anyone. I just, that belief capital is like, oh, other people see that I can do this too, which means it's easier for me to believe that I can.
0: I love what you said, belief capital. That's a good phrase. I remember when I first uh, told my peer group at Bain, well, my parents didn't know what a consultant was. It's still difficult to explain. Like I always tell them, it's like it's like a doctor to companies, and they're kind of like, oh, I like the word doctor, but doctor to companies is still kind of like shaky there. <laughs> but still, it was a statistic, right? Because you could be like, you know, you could walk around and you'd be like, oh, I'm a Bain consultant, and then everyone was like, oh, those in the know would know, and they'd be like, oh, right, let's have a drink or something, right? And I remember when I first left, I told everybody I was gonna to like go full time on this startup that I was building. I felt like so weird going in. And I remember I told my friends about it. And then one guy looked at me, he was like, Oh, thank God, Jeremy. I thought I was going to be the first one to quit. <laughs> right? You know, Thank you for being the first to do so. <laughs> like And taking the flack, right? And, and it was funny because over the years, then a ton of people left it was to build their own startups or join technology. But I think I love the cliff diving analogy you had. It's uh, very much like you just jump out and well, I mean, a lot of people have a tough time as well, let's be real. But but those who do make it, it's it creates that belief capital for everybody else <laughs> up on a cliff.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Your your experience would be very similar, like going from a, a bane to, to leaving that. Most people be like, Why? Why are you leaving that? Like, aren't you on like the path to becoming a partner? Aren't you like, what about your bonus this year? Right? Like, don't don't you want your bonus? And I mean, yeah, I love my bonus, don't get me wrong, but I also want to do something that I'm super passionate about and something that I see a way forward, right? Because it can't just be about passion. Like that's not good enough. I think that that is a big mistake people make too, is just because you enjoy something doesn't mean that you're going to be successful and that you should do it, right? Like I wanted to play professional baseball. That was my passion. It doesn't matter how many times I went to the Houston Astros and told them, hey, I'm really passionate about playing baseball. Will you let me play on the team? they were going to say no over and over and over. So like, it's not enough to be passionate, but like if you have that passion and you also have that skill set that you've built, then it's worth taking that risk and jumping out there to see like do we hit the water maybe you don't like there is a risk that you fail you're 100% right but having those people to to watch that they've done it before and see like it's possible i think that's the the big indicator and then having people who give you that belief capital early on and i have a ton who i have like just tons of respect and the interesting thing is i met basically all the people who gave me belief capital purely online like i never met any of them in real life until Last weekend was the first time I finally met some of them in real life. It was this group of people who really did, like early on, put it in, in my head that, like, this is a real thing. And it, it really changed the trajectory of, of where my life is going. So, incredibly grateful for people who give that kind of belief capital. And I try to, try to return the favor as much as I can to people I see doing cool stuff, especially early on.
0: Love it. I'm writing this down and belief capital, right? That's, that's a good one you know I think it's so true right it's like I think everyone's thinking about capital in terms of like giving capital investing capital investing my capital spending capital and then you're like but belief capital is what drives everybody right like getting up in the morning going to work fighting to do more fighting to change things like wow like belief capital that's a good one and then obviously now you talk about belief capital and I guess that's quite related right because now you talk about speaking which is, I guess, a way of generating belief capital uh, or communicating belief capital. That's one way I think about it. And another way I think about it is you're helping founders raise actual capital. (laughs) So converting belief capital, generating belief capital, and then converting that or using it to harness financial capital, right? I think I'm I'm pushing this analogy to, to a limit right now. But just kind of curious how you think about that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I come in to work with the founder, right, I really am giving them belief capital from myself, like I believe in the thing you're doing. Right? Because oftentimes, they don't know how to tell their story. And I'm like, if you give it to me, like, I'll find the way where you're going to say this and be like, Oh, that's what I'm doing. Cool. Now I believe it. And then you can make other people believe it too. So it really is kind of like my role is to basically bridge this idea between like belief capital that that I have in the idea, because when someone comes to work with me, like I'm not taking on any client Like I want them to walk me through like, why should I care? Why am I excited to work with you? What is it about what you're doing that has the potential to really impact people in a really positive and beneficial way? Because those are the companies I'm looking to, to work with, right? And when they can deliver that, then I can turn that into something where they all of a sudden can feel that belief capital because too many times founders don't know how to tell their story. So like they're not getting the belief capital they need. And so if we can get them to believe their story because now they're hearing, they're like, that is what I'm doing. Then they can go out and actually raise funds because now they can convince people who have money to part with actual capital because like they're giving a story where it makes sense to to those investors. So, I, I mean, I think when I start off, like I first have to believe in somebody to work with them. And so I am giving belief capital because I'm giving my time and investing it in them. And oftentimes, like, I'll do deals where it's just a percentage of, of the raise. So it's, like, all back end. So, like, I really am putting my belief in them because I'm not taking anything up front. Like, I'm saying we're going to be successful. And I think that goes a long ways in helping a founder see, like, somebody else believes in me, somebody else is there, and I can do this. So I, I do think that that is extremely valuable. And when it comes to speaking, right, like, the whole idea of speaking is to inspire people to take some sort of action. And this is one of those mistakes that so many people make when it comes to speaking is they think if I just get up and and deliver something good, that's all that matters, right? And I have this distinction between like someone who tells stories and a storyteller. Someone who tells stories is just telling them as entertainment, they're a distraction. A storyteller uses stories to actually inspire action in his audience. It's creating something out of that story. So like there's this idea of like passive consumption and active consumption, right? The passive is just kind of taking it in and doing nothing. The active is actually taking it and then moving forward because they learned something. They were inspired to action. That's what a great storyteller does. And that's also what a great speaker does. We're trying to give our audience belief that they can take this thing, that they can adopt this idea, that they can move forward with this action. And if we do that and do that well, that's really where you start to see the power of great speakers, right? And we've all seen them. Whether it's in bad ways in history, right? That's certainly been true. Like speech has been used for hugely horrific things to occur. But it's also been seen to do so much good. I mean, JFK talking about going to the moon when the technology we had is like less powerful than the iPhone that we have now. And essentially willing that into existence. Martin Luther King's, I have a dream. And ultimately willing civil rights in America into existence because of his words, because he inspired that action. And I think that's the power of great speaking is if you can give people, their own belief capital because of what you start inside of them, then you have a chance to really see that impact go beyond. And I say as a creator, the creator mindset is basically me plus one. And when I say that, I, I say I, I give every speech or create every piece I do for myself. Like I always want to be proud of it because if I don't like it and I'm not proud of it, I shouldn't be doing it. If it's not authentic and true to myself, I shouldn't be doing it. So I've always got to make sure I take care of me. But then one more, if I can impact one other person with what I do, I don't know what that ripple effect will be. And so if I get some sort of, hey, this changed my mindset, hey, this this led me to take this action, any of those sort of things, or, huh, I've never thought about it like that. And it changes, changes the way that they see the world. To me, that's the creator mindset. And that's what I'm trying to achieve, because then I've transferred that belief capital, because now that person believes something that they didn't when they first came into either the article I wrote, the video I created, or the speech that I give. So that's how I like to think about kind of bridging that belief capital to actual capital and why speaking is so important in today's day and age. And in fact, I, I think that speaking is just going to get more and more important because the ability for AI to take over a lot of the automated tasks, whether it's writing and we see that right with GP3 and things of that nature where some of these tasks that we, we think that we need to do as a human, we don't, but speaking like, I know Elon Musk has the idea of Neuralink where you can basically like communicate seamlessly between two people and maybe that'll be a thing, but that's way off in the future. So I don't think that that's coming anytime soon, which means your ability to speak and connect with people and move them is always going to be incredibly important in the coming decades.
0: So what I agree with you definitely is that so many founders don't storytell, right? And maybe it's a function of they don't know how to, it's a function of they choose not to. And I've literally seen hundreds of decks where my feedback is like, Why is this a problem? Right. I think there's one deck I saw recently, which was like, you know, talking about how they're targeting a minority group that they belong to and, and they, it's a problem. And I was like, you don't say it's a problem. You make it seem like it's something that happens to them, but you don't talk about why it's a problem to solve, right? Uh, Let alone why it's valuable. And I think another one, I'm looking at a deck this week and I'm just like, very much like, Whoa, like you're talking about the numbers, you're talking about a growth, but what are we going after the problem? Like, what's the vision, right? I think there's a phrase, right? And I think one thing, of course, I think the easy part is when founders are like, I don't know how to, right? Which is, the, I don't know how to storytell because that's an easy part. That's just like, let's go to go through the deck, let's help them and so, so forth. But I've seen a lot of founders also say, like, I choose not to, right? They almost look at, speaking better as a bad thing, right? Or like evil thing or a deceptive thing, right? They're very much like the number should speak for myself, the the business should speak for itself. To some extent the deck should speak for itself, right? And those are the ones where I really have the toughest time having a conversation with because it's not a transactional one hour conversation where you can crush the storyline <laughs> with a whiteboard. But it's like it's a deeper conversation, right? And and to be honest, I think I, I do my time and I I tell them, I say, I can't help you this far. But if you want to be a founder, you've got to communicate, articulate some of this, right? So anyway, I think that's, I'm just sharing about how I feel. I just, I'm wondering if you see that in your practice and what you see as well. hundred percent. You see those two areas,
1: either I don't know how or I don't want to. And you have a lot of people who are very technical or maybe they're scientific, right? They're engineers, things of that nature. And they agree. It should just the technical aspects just speak for itself. The feature should speak for itself. The numbers should speak for themselves. And here's the thing. You can make all those things part of your story. Like those can tell a story. That is actually the interesting thing is you don't have to be like story or numbers. It's both. You use the numbers to tell the story. So like you can still do it in a way that's compelling. It's this idea of people want to believe that humans actually operate where if we think of the saying, don't judge a book by its cover, People want to think that that's reality, but it's not. There is a reason book covers matter so much. Like you go into a store or look on Amazon and the book cover 100% matters. It's like, why are we putting our head in the sand and saying, oh, well, don't judge a book by its cover. You know what you're saying there when you're a founder and you're saying, I don't want to storytell. You're saying, oh, the cover doesn't matter. Like they'll just get to the numbers and be like, we're good. Guess what? If you don't have a compelling cover, they don't care because your customer isn't going to care. If you don't have a good cover, your customer isn't going to get the numbers. The customer isn't going to connect with you. You're going to have no kind of business brand. You're going to have no moat around yourself. There's going to be no reason that anybody wants to come and work with you as an employee. There's going to be no reason your customers are loyal to you. If you have the best product, they'll stay with you, but then somebody's going to replace you and then they're going to move on to that one. The story is what allows people to connect, right? Like there's a reason throughout human history that we love stories. Why do the Iliad and the Odyssey still exist to this day? They started thousands of years ago and they were told through oral tradition and they were told to teach lessons, but they were entertaining at the same time. And that's why they continue to get passed on and passed on to the point that they got written down by Homer to the point that they end up getting made into movies, whether that's Troy or a remake, right? Like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I'm sure we'll see more in the future because those stories matter, right? The idea of the Trojan horse. We all know what that means. And that comes from the story, right? Of the Iliad. So if we really think about it, like if we can start tying some of these founders to like, let's talk about history, like let's go into great historical moments and talk about why they tell it in story format. So like, that's kind of what I have to do when I'm dealing with a founder who's maybe like, I don't want to tell a story. I'd be like, let's, let's go through this. Like I can basically pull out all these examples and be like, let's do this, this, this thing. And now tell me what you see in common about them. And then they start to pick up on it. And the ones who are really like, no, I'm not going to tell a story. Like I don't work with them. I'm not going to bang my head against, against the wall when I know what works. I know it works on a human psychological level. I know it works when it comes to pitching. I know it works when it comes to being a speaker and that's telling a great story. It doesn't mean you're telling a fairy tale. It means you're telling it in a narrative arc, that you're taking your, your audience on an adventure, on a journey where they feel like they're a character in the story. But it doesn't mean that it's some make-believe and, and fluffy language and all sorts of things. In fact, many times story arcs, like I've worked with people who are VCs and trying to get better at pitches to like the partners in their VC firm. And they'll have 30 seconds to deliver a pitch. I'm like we can still make that pitch have a narrative arc, so you can still tell a story, even a thirty-second little bit, if you do it right. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of kind of understanding of how best to structure that. So I push back on those people who say I don't want it, and say we can either fix that mindset or we cannot work
0: together, because that's just the way
1: it's going to end up being. I don't I don't need to deal with that issue.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true, and I, to be fair, I, I'm often the same boat, right? Because I can easily help rewrite the deck. And create a core narrative loop. And whether you want to do it or not, that's all a separate question altogether, right? And I want to pick up on what you said, right? Which is that you said, like, the numbers can be part of the story, right? And I think that's so true, right? Like, nobody wants to see a fairy tale without numbers. And I always tell people, it's like, the people on the other side of the table are very sophisticated, right? The venture capitalists, if... Or angels or whoever it is, or customers, or whoever it is, or future employees. They've they've seen the story hundreds of times, right? Thousands even. So then you see both. I'm just kind of curious. Why do you think people make it binary? This is like some kind of like limiting belief, you know, or like we started teaching kids that like the story versus numbers. Like, why do people believe there's a binary choice between story and numbers? I'm just kind of curious from your perspective. So I think a lot of people look at
1: story and and have this picture in their mind that it's like Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. And like, it, it's all make-believe. And that's not really, they're serious. Like they want to be seen as like, I have a serious product. I have, I have real numbers. Like that's all that that matters. And I think it's this idea that people have this, this mistaken belief that logic and reason and numbers and those sort of things convince people to take action. And it's just not true. We take action as human beings because of an emotional, response that we have. Now, how do you create that emotional response? Like You need to to have numbers and logic and reason because humans essentially don't want to say that we're emotional creatures. So like no one's going to say, I bought this thing because I felt this way inside. No investor is going to be like, I invested in you because I felt some way inside. They're going to be like, I saw this number, this number, this number, this is what spoke to me. What they're doing is they're using the numbers to rationalize the emotion that actually led them to that decision. So we want to give numbers and we want to do kind of all of the the normal content to help people rationalize why they made the decision. So it's always kind of those two pieces together. But I think the reason people fall into this, it's a binary issue, is a lot of them come from the tech space. A lot of them come from engineering or science backgrounds. And their coworkers and the people that they know get numbers. And numbers speak to them or data speaks to them, right? The mechanics, the technical specs, those are the things that people that they've been dealing with day in and day out understand the problem is most of the time your customers aren't those people so most the time somebody who is an investor wants to see how you're going to articulate your product in a way that connects with your customer because at the end of the day if you're not getting any sort of customers to your product like what's the point of the product now maybe there's still a point like it's not for everything like some things you are going to be just fine if you don't speak to your customer because maybe you already have a deal in place with the US government if you create this thing for them and they just don't care. Like they just want a problem solved and you're the one who can do it. Great. That's fine. But for most people, you've got to show how you're going to tell that story to bring customers to your vision, your idea that you're building. And not just customers, right? You also want investors to see that you're going to be able to get other investors to, to join on so that the round can be fully funded. You're also going to want to be able to demonstrate to the investors of the growth that's going to come so that they know they're going to get a return on that money that they're they're investing. You also want to be able to attract the right employees. So like if you're a a solo founder and you're trying to figure out how do I hire an executive team, where are those first hires coming in? If you don't have a story to tell them and you just have numbers, you're not going to find the right people because you don't need somebody just like yourself in that role. Like most of the time, if you're a founder, maybe you have the vision, but you don't have the technical chops. So you need to like make sure that the person who has the technical chops can come in and understand your vision in that story and say like, let's figure out how this works together. Or you're a technical founder and you're trying to find somebody who can be the marketing arm. Well, the marketing person is going to be thinking about vision and thinking about like, how does this relate to our core values, the ways that we see the world? And if you are just telling numbers, like the marketing person can be like, I don't know how to just talk to a bunch of customers about like numbers, like no one's going to care. Like that's not going to work. So I think it's also that investors want to see the ability for you to connect with a wide range of people and stories do that. Investors know that that's why they're looking for it. But I think that the, the mistake in terms of why people think it's a binary issue is because they feel like that's adding, persuasion not the right word, but it's adding kind of like manipulative tactics to it. And I always say this, there's a difference between manipulation and persuasion. Manipulation is when you're just trying to extract value. Persuasion is when you're trying to get value, but also deliver value. And there's a difference. And so like the way we tell the story is persuasive, not manipulative, But I think a lot of people who are so in this world of numbers, numbers, numbers think adding any sort of elements of persuasion actually is manipulation. And that shouldn't be the case. And I think that's actually where their mind goes. And if we can start to create this distinction between persuasion and manipulation, people will be much better off and and realize that persuasion is totally good. Because when you go into an investor meeting, right, you're telling them, I need you to give me money, but I'm going to return the money to you. Like I'm going to deliver value to you. And so that's it's it's a two way street instead of a one way with manipulation. So that's how I like to frame it, and and hopefully some people will listen to this and start realizing it's not a binary issue. Like you can do both.
0: Yeah, I think you really kind of like hit a lot of the core points here, right? It's like prior book environments. It's about the perception. It's about the false perception as a binary trade off. It's the the fear that's manipulative. Yeah. I Maybe mean, one thing I'll add to that as well, just off the top of my head, is like whenever we're working with on a business that already exists, there's so many numbers, right? I mean, when I was a consultant, there were so many numbers like from a client, I downloaded a spreadsheet about company data and it was so big that my laptop couldn't handle opening up the Excel spreadsheet, right? There's just so many numbers. So I had to find a more powerful laptop, delete a whole bunch of numbers that were irrelevant to just the numbers I could have and then do the analysis on my own laptop. Right. But I think the interesting thing about startups as well is just like, there's so much value to be created in the future. You know, even with a seed or series A or series B it's still so early in the journey that if you can't story tell the future, you, you're almost like what visualizing the numbers in advance for people. Yeah. You're making me think quite a bit actually about this. I'm gonna scratch that itch in my head.
1: Yeah, I think the one that I always love about this too is using Elon Musk as an example. Like he basically told a a vision of the future for Tesla for years when like there was really no Teslas anywhere. And you know what I see now everywhere in in Dallas, Texas are Teslas. Everywhere I look, Teslas. Because he essentially didn't have the numbers to back it up early, but was like, here's the vision. Here's where we're going. And it came true because like, it was so clear I could see it. I remember following this journey for as long as I can remember being like, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Like, It's so clear in the way he's describing it, he is seeing it in his head. And if you can see with that level of clarity, you know how to get there. And I think that's where that storytelling is so important too, because it shows that the founder has the ability to forecast the future. And if you can forecast the future, what you can essentially do is reverse engineer from that forecasting you're doing and figure out, here's where we are. How do we get to this future and then take the right steps to actually get there? Like he's done it. The same with SpaceX. Like that thing is nuts. That thing is absolutely nuts that he was able to achieve getting rockets in the way that he has done. And yet again, it comes down to this idea. He told a story early on, a vision of going to Mars and what that looks like and why we need it, right? And I think to me, when when you have somebody like that, who's able to articulate in such beautiful detail and paint that picture for us. That's where we get excited and we say, I want to know more about that. Like, I'm going to say following that. That's the thing I want. And then again, he's just basically reverse engineering from this vision that he has for the future. And that is allowing him to be successful in the steps that he needs to take. And so if we're just looking at cold numbers, like most people who are dealing with just numbers are going to do projections with numbers. But it doesn't really tell me anything because are those numbers going to be true? Is it going to continue to move that way? Things change. Like nobody in 2020 would have seen COVID coming right? Like you could have been giving me projections about real estate prices for business offices in New York at the beginning of 2020. And you know what? I guarantee you 2020 showed you that those numbers were not right. But if you have a bigger vision and you're saying like, this is where the world is going long-term. And I see that vision. I know how we can get there. That's different. So numbers give us a projection, which can be wrong. A vision gives us a bigger blueprint of like 10 years, 50 years, hundred years. And that allows you more freedom because as you get more finite, right? In your time domain, your ability to forecast gets harder and harder and harder. Little things can put you off course. Whereas a bigger vision that kind of maps it further out actually gives you more freedom to adjust along the way and still get to your end goal, right? I mean, if we think about quickly like Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite movies and and books, like that journey to get to Mordor was very circuitous for Frodo and Sam. But ultimately they got there by going different routes. And that's kind of how I think about a founder when they give their story and their vision. There are multiple routes to ultimately get there. But if you're only using numbers and projecting things, it becomes very challenging because now you're really beholden
0: to those numbers. So you've chosen to sell the company to join On Deck, right? And so that means that you believe that you plus them equals something special, right? So what's the special On Deck cost like? What are people going to get that, I guess, to some extent, is going to be, a, what, what are they going to get out of the cost that you brought to deck? But also, what are they going to get with that alchemy between yourself and OnDeck?
1: So, I mean, obviously, you come into a speaking program to get better at speaking. Will that happen? 100%. That's just a no-brainer. But what they're going to get is an experience that I think they're, they're not expecting. And what I say by that is the level of connection that you create inside of that community By going through this program, the way that it's designed, like you walk out where you'll continue to be friends with these people. You'll continue to build with these people because you're being vulnerable and you're sharing yourself. You're exposing who you are to all of the members of this community. That's what speaking is. And we do it in a way that's safe, but also lets you get to know one another and let other people get to know you. And I think that's the beauty is actually seeing those connections as they build and watching them really blossom, where I ended up in the last program, I had people who ended up hiring one another to work together. And that's the type of thing where where you want to see that come to life. But really what you want to see, and what I think people will be surprised at, is how many doors open in their lives that they don't realize are there right now. Because that's actually what happens with speaking, is you start seeing doors that didn't exist before. You start seeing opportunities that you never knew were there. And that's the really cool thing. It's not just because you're better at speaking, it's because you're, you shift your mindset, you start seeing things differently. And that's actually that transformation that we talk about. And, and I know Andrew Berry has coined the term transformational online courses. And that is 100% what this is geared to be. So that's the surprise is it is actually geared to bring about transformation of the person while also making sure that they get better at speaking. But I think the magic in On Deck really is the quality of the individual coming into the program. Right? I think that's that secret sauce is, is you really get great people who understand the power of community and also how their voice, essentially getting better at this, can amplify their skill set. This isn't a course where it's for a bunch of, you know, guru learners who want to just get up on stage and teach other people how to get up on stage and like never deliver anything because like I told you earlier, speaking is all about creating action. And what this is designed to do is to create great holistic speakers where you create action and use the skills and expertise and experience that you've built over your career to really change and impact lives, not just get up and tell my story so I can teach you how to tell your story so you can teach somebody else how to tell their story and everyone sounds the same. Because here's the thing. I don't need another Robbie Crabtree in the world. We've got one of me. That's enough. Like, I need everybody else to have their voice. I need everybody else to tell their story, but I need them to tell it in a way that impacts the world. And that's what I focus on. That's what we focus on in on deck. And the people coming in are all on board with this idea. And that's why I joined with on deck because it is essentially this force multiplier. Just like I say, I can give you a force multiplier by teaching you how to be a great speaker and letting that amplify your skills. The same is true with me and on deck pairing up. We can force multiply each other where one plus one equals three. Right. And so that's how I like to, to really think about this idea. Is all of a sudden you have access to this change and this community that you never expected beforehand. And so like that really is kind of of this beauty. And and the way I like to think about it too is like my goal is to give people a megaphone and a scapel. We're trying to give people a megaphone to reach more people. We're trying to give them a scapel to reach the right ones with the right message.
0: So, Robbie, you know, this has been a great hour. We've had such a deep conversation about not just your personal journey, but also what you got out of it. And we talked a lot about belief capital as well and how there's a false dichotomy between, you know, numbers and story, right? So for those who want to get deeper to you beyond of course applying to on deck for your course, I mean, which is I percent recommend as someone who's gone through the on deck founder fellowship and the podcaster fellowship, about how could they reach out to you? So people can always reach out to me on Twitter. It's at Robbie Crab,
1: R-O-B-B-I-E-C-R-A-B. That's the easiest way. I put tons of content out there. I respond to DMs. Like I love talking to people. I'm here to help. So that's the easiest way. You can always email me to Robbie at beyonddeck.com. You can go to my personal website and this is going to throw people a little bit for a loop because it's a little bit different, but it's Crabtree.com, And that's where I write. And so far this year, I've written 30 articles. I also wrote a very deep, year in review in story format, true to myself, for 2020, which actually chronicles kind of the entire journey. If people are interested in learning more about kind of how that process played out. And I'm on a mission to write a 100 articles this year and publish them. So I'm 30 in and have 70 to go. So if you want to continue to read my thinking and thoughts and all those sort of things, feel free to check out the website. But of course, Twitter is where I'm, I'm most at home, and you'll see me post links to all those articles there as well. So if you need anything, at Robbie Crabb is the best place to find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting and shooting the breeze and getting deep.
1: Thanks so much, Jeremy. It's been amazing. I, I look forward to, uh, to doing it
0: again sometime in the future. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyour.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.